And that's where in Afghanistan, we typically fell short. been there for 20 years, but we don't have a 20-year product. Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Major Tom Fox, your host. I'm excited that you're back with us for part two of Major A.J. Glubzinski's fascinating discussion with Ambassador Doug Lute, the former U.S. Ambassador to NATO and current McDermott Distinguished Chair of Social Sciences here at West Point. This second part of the interview looks more closely at how development assistance and security force assistance fit into the puzzle that is Afghanistan. There's a lot to learn here, and Clausewitz even makes his way into the conversation. So without further ado, back to Major Klubzinski and Ambassador Lute. The way we'll try to, to, to work through those maybe makes the most sense chronologically, working at, you know, from this kind of 2009 shift with the Obama administration. We had this shift towards a counterinsurgency approach, and in particular, a strong dimension of that was development assistance. And then Kind of in sequence we can get to the security force assistance sure. and the diplomacy so on the the development assistance dimension and obviously in the cigar their oversight and their lessons learned reports focus heavily on this as well but the key going back to the success of or apparent success of counterinsurgency in iraq was the role of development assistance projects and this was you know a key key portion of the reconstruction effort in afghanistan going alongside counterinsurgency doctrine but also a great deal of trouble that they kind of emerged at, associated with implementing um, development assistance and reconstruction whether that was in the area of corruption or the sustainability of projects or simply the way that Afghan locals and the Taliban reacted to them. So just interested in what your perspectives are on the effects of the development assistance dimension of of counterinsurgency. Well, first of all, you're right to highlight the development assistance is a key part of counterinsurgency doctrine, right? So and that's because it fits very importantly in the clear whole field transfer model. Right. So this is the basic sequential series of effects that we're trying to have. So initially you clear an area of insurgents, you hold that area so the insurgents can't return. Uh, You eventually build capacity, indigenous capacity inside that area. So think a district center in one of the provinces in Afghanistan. Right. So you build Afghan governance capacity. This is where in the build phase, this is where development assistance comes into play. You provide uh, resources and services to the to the local population that demonstrate to them that their central government can deliver in ways that the insurgency cannot, right? And you hope to win their allegiance by way of this delivery of services. And then eventually you transfer this whole effort in the fourth phase to Afghan or to local local capacity alone. And the Western or American forces that started at the clear phase can move on to the other chores, right? So that's kind of the life cycle of a of a microcosm of counterinsurgency. And clearly development assistance plays an important role. I think it's very difficult to parse out and isolate that variable, development assistance, from the whole model. Because quite candidly, we often didn't get to the build phase in Afghanistan. And this goes back to the previous conversation about an overemphasis on the military effort, right? I believe you can send an American infantry battalion, whether army or Marines, nearly anywhere in the world. Okay, maybe not downtown Moscow, right? But almost anywhere in the world, 
and they can clear an area. And you can send, keep that same battalion in that place indefinitely in the uh, hold phase. But the build phase is much more complex because it's not military only. And you've got to make it in the build phase. You must make it indigenous. You must make it authentically local. And that's where in Afghanistan, we typically fell short. This has a lot to do not with our, so even so much with our effort as it did with what was possible in Afghanistan. I mean, government capacity, for example, was very limited, but it's very difficult to parse out. So what was the effective development assistance? Because it's so intertwined with these four phases and with the other variables. One last thought on development assistance. I think it garners a lot of attention because it is, it can be empirically evidenced, right? I mean, you can say, in fact, the inspector general frequently has these sort of dramatic reports of X number of millions of dollars being wasted on this or squandered on that. So there's a unit of measure for development assistance, which draws our attention to it, much like number of troops draws our attention to the military effort. So maybe we're trapped a little here. Maybe we're a little fixated on things that can be quantified troops and dollars in ways that sort of mask the overall complexity of campaign and don't really lend much to what we're trying to accomplish uh, overall. The last point I make on development assistance is that in order to be effective, it seems to me, we should have learned that development assistance needs to be very textured, very appreciative and reflecting of local priorities. So it's not enough for the U.S. Agency for International Development to have this image of a schoolhouse in a district center in remote Afghanistan and what that schoolhouse should look like. What's much more important is what do the people in that district actually need? Maybe they don't need a schoolhouse. Maybe they need clean water or maybe they need fertilizer or maybe they need an irrigation system or maybe they need a means to impose justice, to arbitrate political disputes. So land rights, livestock ownership, and so forth. So without that local texture, we're sort of guessing at development assistance. And in my experience, too often, we lacked that local dimension that made development assistance most effective for the people who mattered, which are the people on the ground. And then in addition to that lack of sort of understanding, local understanding, we coupled our development assistance effort with a lack of continuity because our development assistance individuals and our leadership, both civilian and military, tended to rotate through this problem set too frequently so that rather than have a continuous campaign of 20 years, what we've really had are campaign vignettes that succeed one another and don't add up to a 20-year effort. So this notion of lack of understanding, local understanding, coupled with lack of continuity of effort, uh, have really mitigated the impact of, uh, of our development assistance. So we've poured a lot of dollars into this effort, but we haven't gotten that degree of output. Yes, sir. No, I really, I really appreciate the dexterity and the, the multiple variables that, that you, you bring into that that thinking. And um, I've, I've spent the past few years working on, on development assistance in, in Afghanistan and trying to develop a model that, that really captures this, the need for, for local intervention, the challenges of continuity, um, and also this, this just idea of measurement of what we should be measuring associated with the effects of development assistance. So the framework that I've, that I've kind of developed, and I'm interested to, to hear what you think about it, is 
Um, one that focuses on risk and commitment um, as the kind of the two key variables for for whether development assistance is effective. And and risk is primarily movement of development assistance projects away from the center, away from the city centers into areas that are more likely to favor insurgents. So this should be getting out into the, the more rural communities, into the villages, into the valleys. And then the second part is commitment. And commitment, the way that I think about it in the paper that I've written and the way that I think Afghans would think about it is related to the, the frequency of interactions. How much time or do we spend in a village, right? So I, I look at the number of projects that have been within a local area. So this idea of risk and commitment, I try to piece together and empirically look just within the immediate proximity, say five kilometers of development assistance project. The existing literature really focuses more broadly. The inspector general, what they base the reporting on is, is effects at the district level. And I think this idea of of the local nature of development assistance, the local nature of, of community in Afghanistan uh, might be missing from our, our empirical frameworks. This doesn't make it easy. I think the demands, if we see the demands as risk and commitment, it actually shows how costly development assistance or intervention in Afghanistan is at all. The idea that right we got to consistently get away from the center and out into local communities takes time and resources. There's monetary as well as you know lives that are that are at risk with those those types of interventions. But that's the way I've been thinking about this development assistance piece over the past few, past few years. I'm interested what you think about that. Well, so I think those are two important factors, risk and commitment. And of course, they flow from the clear, hold, build, transfer model, right? I mean, so clear and hold are the early phases that reduce the risk sufficiently so that development assistance can actually be applied. Right? There's no reason to build a schoolhouse if you're in a firefight with the Taliban because you haven't cleared and held the district, right? So those are kind of the, the security thresholds, which allow then development assistance and indigenous governance, you know, local governance to begin to take hold. So I, I do think there's a security threshold, which is important. And, you know, earlier you mentioned Iraq. I think this, the 2007-2008 surge in Iraq allowed us to cross that security threshold at the operational scale, uh, especially in Baghdad, to the point where governance and development assistance could actually have an impact. But if you're short of that security threshold, the risk, your first factor, is so great that development assistance can't take hold. The other thing I would mention here is that the way we deliver, the way the U.S. government today delivers assistance, development assistance, I think deserves reexamination. The U.S. Agency for International Development has largely become a contract agency. So one model of development assistance would be, for example, the Peace Corps, where you have sometimes individual American citizens out in very rural areas assisting with education or agriculture and so forth. We've moved to sort of an industrialized model of development assistance where we just pump dollars into different contractors with the promise that they're going to deliver certain projects. But those projects are often disconnected from local needs, local texture, and so forth. In both Iraq and Afghanistan, because of the limitations of delivering development assistance, we created this, this hybrid model of PRTs, right? Provincial Reconstruction Teams. And the idea there was, let's create a small civil military team, basically at the provincial level, right? So the, the 33 or 34 provinces in Afghanistan. And out of this outpost, 
this development assistance outpost will deliver projects. That was an attempt to account for the fact that we needed more on the ground local experience and understanding and that you couldn't do development assistance from the center alone, from Kabul, for example, or Kandahar or Herat. You had to get outside. That had some impact, and I think it was a move in the right direction. But too often, our provincial reconstruction teams were dominated by military officers. I mean, I remember visiting on uh, several occasions, PRTs in rural Afghanistan somewhere. And, you know, the aircraft lands, the visiting team steps off the aircraft, and there are seven or eight military officers and one person, one civilian person from USAID, or more likely a contractor. Well, that's not exactly the model for development assistance. So even the development assistance model in Afghanistan tended to be militarized. Now, part of that is that we struggled to get above the security threshold, right? We, we struggled to get to the point where security assistance experts could actually safely operate on the ground at the local level. So it's very complex, but there's a lot to learn here in terms of development assistance in conflict settings, and, and, and in particular as part of a counterinsurgency campaign. Absolutely. I, in my research, I spent some time with provincial reconstruction teams um, and with State Department um, and USAID in, uh, officials from from within those teams as well, and was just just re- really impressed with the careful nature of their thought. And one of the the things that I I did get away from from talking to PRTs, and it very much goes into your your point about development assistance not being able to be focused in the center, is when they develop the relationships to get outside, whether it's away from the highway, away from district centers. Development assistance often had a positive effect in terms of almost co-opting um, local insurgents even potentially, where, where violence, violent responses to development assistance projects didn't increase as much as, as expected. So there's, there's an interesting, going back to your idea of delivering something that the insurgents cannot, um, there might be something there that's, that's in development assistance, at least that, that I suggest seems, seems worth exploring this idea of, of co-option. Now, the hard part is co-option very much doesn't help us defeat um, as you, you, you've described as the, the deep challenge of both counterterrorism and counterinsurgency is we're, we're still in all cases struggling to truly defeat. But I think this is, is important to highlight kind of where we've ended up and, you know, logically explains the fact that that we haven't you know defeated the Taliban as we're, you know, in the present context. Right. You know, development assistance also, though, there's a, there's a dark side of development assistance, and that is that without local understanding and without sufficient security Development assistance can turn into one of the elements of, a, uh, of corruption for the local government. And if development assistance is seen by the people as just another form of corruption, like who gets the contracts, who controls it, quality of the delivery, and so forth, it can actually have a, a cross-cutting impact. It can have a counterproductive impact because it can be seen as just another way in which the people are being abused and that the rich are getting richer. And I think there's an element of that in Afghanistan, in our experience in Afghanistan as well. As we, as we failed to have the local texture or to understand the problems and what the people needed, I think, I think it is likely that unintentionally we may have contributed to the perception that the Afghan government officials were simply corrupt and were profiting from the development assistance effort. That makes a lot of sense. And the, the way that the, the process very much matters and the, 
um, institutions exactly. matter for implementation. I think that that leads us naturally to transition into talking more about this governance level and, and in particular security force assistance effort um, or governance development efforts. So this kind of within the Obama administration tried to transition from counterinsurgency that was more active from a from a U.S. perspective to um, around 2014, 2015, putting Afghans in the lead was kind of the effort with security force assistance, maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, I think I was in, Af- in Afghanistan 2012, 2013, where we transitioning into really almost a pure security force assistance model. But this is often due to the challenges with counterinsurgency, like counterterrorism, security force assistance is often brought up as viable alternative to counterinsurgency. Um, as you said, it's it's maybe more part of the counterinsurgency model. But but what have we learned about security force assistance? Well, we should have learned a lot. And in particular, you know, our parent service, the U.S. Army, should really go to school on this because this is ultimately in most counterinsurgency campaigns. This is perhaps the dominant variable. And the reason for that is that in most insurgency situations, outside forces like ours will not have sufficient understanding of the situation. They won't have the local understanding. And in most counterinsurgency efforts, our political setting won't have the patience to sustain the effort for the time required. So the way to get around these shortfalls is to, as quickly as possible, transition this effort to capable local forces. So security force assistance is really, it's at the core of the counterinsurgency campaign. You know, short of that, if we imagine doing counterinsurgency ourselves forever in places like Afghanistan, that begins to edge towards colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I mean, we own the problem in a way that isn't, it, it is not sustainable in our governmental structure. So really handing this problem to capable local forces is the ticket, right? That's what we want to do. So what did we learn from that? A couple first order lessons. One is we started late. After the 2001 intervention, we didn't get serious about building Afghan security forces for years. Now, a contributing factor here was that we intervened in 2001. By 2003, we're in a knife fight in in Iraq. And many resources uh, were diverted or committed to the priority effort in Iraq after 2003. I mean, the classic unit of measure here would be Green Beret A-teams, so Special Forces A-teams, which, by the way, are the only organizational structure at that point, the only organizational structure in the whole force structure who had as a mission essential task security force assistance. Right. I mean, the Green Berets were built by John Kennedy in the early 60s to build Vietnamese indigenous security forces. Right. And this is what they do. This is the the structure of an A-team is to fall in on is designed to fall in on a battalion of indigenous forces and develop them and and so forth. Right. But when you look at where the A-teams went in the 2003 to 2000, probably eight or nine time frame, they were three to four to one in Iraq versus Afghanistan. So we economized for many years in terms of our assistance effort in Afghanistan. And while we did that, the Taliban were regrouping. So and, and so we, to some extent, lost attention, lost sight of what was going on in Afghanistan. It wasn't until part of the Obama surge that we be, really began to commit the resources required 
to develop the Afghan security forces. So for a couple years as part of the Afghan, the Obama surge, we committed over $10 billion a year to organize, train, and equip the Afghan security forces. That's a huge chunk of the defense budget, the U.S. defense budget. Now, you can argue that, I think there's a counter argument that when we turned the faucet on, you know, it drowned our effort because I'm not sure that, I believe that, that the Afghan economy and the security force development effort could not absorb 10 plus billion dollars a year. And the result is that we poured money into facilities and in some cases equipment that were simply inappropriate. But we we had the appropriated dollars, so we spent them. So there's this question of resources, depriving resources for too long, then flooding resources in an inefficient way. I think another lesson is that we when we asked ourselves what should the Afghan security forces look like? Too often, the answer we came up with was a mirror image of our forces. And this mirror imaging with too little appreciation for the Afghan tradition, the Afghan political military culture, the Afghan experience, I think this mirror imaging hindered our efforts. And and that wasn't helpful. And then finally, a lesson is that we did not sufficiently understand the challenges of building Afghan security forces that came from the underlying conditions in Afghanistan. So the extreme poverty, the limited human capital, uh, so something like 70% illiteracy rate, for example, the corruption, you know, the, the tendency of Afghan uh, military leaders to have to purchase their leadership positions. And, you know, if you're a local battalion commander in the Afghan army and you have to purchase your your command, right, the, the privilege to command, you do so with the expectation that you're going to recoup that expense while you're on duty. And that then fuels corruption. And there are there are very credible reports about this pattern. Um, I think we underestimated the impact of ethnic divisions, demographics inside Afghanistan. So in some cases, we built essentially uh, Tajik-led units and sent them into Pashtun rural areas. They had many of the same problems of connecting with the local Pashtun people that we had. So in some cases, these Afghan forces were almost as foreign to the areas in which they were operating as our forces were. So we underappreciated that. The challenges of language, for example, uh, come come to the front. So the result is that after almost 20 years of being in Afghanistan, today we do not have the Afghan security forces that we need. And the result is that we're in this political debate about what happens if we were to leave and the whole thing crumbles. Well, it should not, in my view, take 20 years to build a modest, right-sized, appropriately scaled uh, local force. But we have not, we've been there for 20 years, but we don't have a 20-year product. Yeah, I think both of both of those um, points that you concluded on in terms of the unevenness over the the course of 20 years, in terms of our our, our policy, stands particularly true. And then you know even with these interventions, whether it's security force assistance or counterinsurgency, the points at which they were started, the tempo at which we tried to tried to do them um, doesn't necessarily fit this, you know, long 20, it doesn't fit with, it doesn't, it's not 20 years of consistency. It's, right. you know, 18 months of counterinsurgency or three or four years of 
real focus on security force assistance. And this uh, goes back to this earlier point about continuity. Throughout this 20-year period, we have changed senior military and civilian leadership at a rate which ensures that we are limited in terms of campaign continuity. I mean, the last time I did the math, the average tour of duty, length of tour of duty of a U.S. commander in Afghanistan at the senior most level, right, at the four-star level is 13 months. Well, you know, you kind of get to know Afghanistan in 13 months. And when you have a succession of these relatively short tours of duty, and this is a civilian problem as well, so this isn't entirely a, a military problem alone. What you have is this sacrifice in terms of continuity. Very much. And this, I think, goes into some broader, deeper questions about American political will and the impacts on veterans and families and desire to serve and, and, and lots of deep things. So I think we'll we'll finish up thinking about really what the what the political will for Afghanistan looks like going into the future. But the, the last question I want to get to before we get there is going back to this that's come up several times is the diplomacy dimension and our relationship with allies, whether that's your observations while at NATO or the role of other allies or other other countries in the region, Pakistan in particular, it has come up. What have, what have we learned about our ability to um, do diplomacy, to move towards a, a peace settlement over the course of, you know, at least the past 10 years when we've been working on this, this aspect of Afghanistan? So let me try to cut that question in two parts, right? So first of all, for allies. So here I, I define allies in sort of technical terms. That is those with whom we have a NATO-like treaty obligation. And, and so NATO in particular. For NATO allies, Afghanistan has been a watershed. I mean, it is it represents the only time in the 70 plus year history of the NATO alliance that the alliance has invoked its mutual defense clause, the famous Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, which was, of course, signed in 1949, imagining a Soviet Union attack in Central Europe. But in the wake of September 11th, 2001, it was invoked by the alliance, having nothing to do with the Soviet Union, nothing to do with Central Europe, and nothing to do with an armed attack in the classic sense. I mean, these were, you know, hijacked airplanes. So for NATO, this historic invocation of Article 5 was a real watershed historic event. The result is that literally on September 12th, NATO invoked Article 5. The result is now some nearly 20 years later, we still have NATO in Afghanistan alongside American forces and representing about a third of the force structure uh, over a period of time in Afghanistan. So we've gotten a an alliance dividend, if you will, by way of uh, NATO's activity there. But also we've they've taken a significant cost. I mean, America has lost about 2,400 soldiers killed in action, soldiers and Marines, servicemen, men and women killed in action in Afghanistan. Our NATO allies have lost 1,000. Uh, and this is allies and partners. So other, other countries is affiliated with NATO. So I think that for Americans, Afghanistan and NATO's commitment to stand alongside us in Afghanistan should be a classic reminder of the value of, a, of the alliance structure. Because here you have an alliance that was built around security of Europe and 20 years of experience in Afghanistan says that we are not alone. We don't have to take on projects like Afghanistan alone. We can do it with allies. That's very important. The second lesson for NATO itself is that these 20 years of combat experience 
have been hugely important to NATO as a laboratory for how to actually operate at the tactical and operational levels of war, how to operate together as an alliance. So, you know, we've exercised for decades of the Cold War on how to fight the Soviet Union, right? That's sort of the Hove Corridor, the Fulda Gap and all that, right? Afghanistan has given us a laboratory that has hugely improved NATO's ability to command and control itself in a combat setting, share intelligence, conduct special operations side by side. And the result is after these years in Afghanistan, NATO's operational capacity is much greater than it was on September 11th. So NATO has gained in terms of operational capacity uh, a great deal from its experience in Afghanistan. Now, the second half of your question had to do with the potential for diplomacy. And here on diplomacy, as we've already discussed, I think we've for too long over relied on military ways and means and often discounted political and diplomatic ways of stabilizing Afghanistan. It's only most recently, especially under the leadership of Ambassador Zal Khalizad, that we've opened up a potentially important, only potentially, but potentially important diplomatic channel that has the Afghan Taliban sitting with the Afghan government to talk about their common interest, which is the future of Afghanistan. Now, they may have competing visions of the future of Afghanistan, but I believe that Afghans talking to Afghans have a much, that that, that format has a much greater potential to stabilize Afghanistan than our outside intervention than our efforts to force a solution by way of arms. Look, it's the Afghan people who are paying the biggest price for this. The most recent data is that something like 10,000 Afghan civilians have been killed for six consecutive, the last six consecutive years. That's Afghan civilians. Add to that 10,000 about the same number each year of Afghan security forces killed. Okay, That's a huge Afghan price. And it seems to me that that's the cost factor that we need better to appreciate. We're losing only a few, each of them tragic, but only a few Americans every year. The Afghans are losing 10 or 20,000 uh, a year. So it seems to me urgent and important that we support these efforts to get the Afghans to sit with the Afghan Taliban, the Afghan government to sit with the Afghan Taliban and talk about the future of their country. Because if the last 20 years demonstrate anything, that even outsized American efforts. So at our peak, 100,000 American troops, 120 billion a year in terms of money committed to Afghanistan cannot dictate the outcome. So let's see if an Afghan to Afghan solution is, is plausible. So I'm all for diplomacy. And, you know, and this takes us back to kind of the classic observation of, of Clausewitz, right, that the military campaign is in support of some political outcome. Well, for too long, we focused on the military campaign without actually much of a vision of the political outcome. So we had the supporting effort driving our national attention. And so I think it's right that we've sort of inverted this effort and put the military campaign in support of a political effort. Now, the political effort is anything but sure. I mean, it's it's not at all clear what is going to be decided here, if anything. And the path won't be easy. But what we do know is that the alternative path, an effort to deliver a stable Afghanistan by military means alone, has not proven deliverable, has not proven viable. 
So look, I, I don't hand the Trump administration credit for much, but one of the things I hand them is credit for sort of inverting this campaign in a healthy way and inverting it by way of putting the military effort in support of the diplomacy. And in particular, I applaud Zal Khalizad as delivering an outcome, these Afghan on Afghan talks that maybe no other diplomat in the world could deliver. Certainly uh, an important time now. And, you know, as we come up, we've talked about um, inflection points surrounding elections and changes in policy. We potentially have another one coming in, in the next few months. And as you said, this is a critical time for the ongoing peace negotiations in Afghanistan. Any, any sense of what the uh, potential post-election effects on the peace talks or, or the future of Afghanistan might be? or what we might be able to expect in, in Afghanistan early in, in 2021? So I think over the last several years, we've seen the inevitable and persistent narrowing of our objectives down to the point where we're really focused on what took us to Afghanistan in the first place, and that is al-Qaeda. And, you know, the first parts of the peace talks, or the talks between the U.S. and the Taliban simply had to do with al-Qaeda from our perspective. Now, the commitments of the Taliban to break ties with al-Qaeda and then to deliver on that breaking of ties, I think is still, it's been promised, but not yet delivered. So I think that's inevitable, that eventually we have gotten down to sort of the brass tacks here. And that's the vital U.S. interest having to do with al-Qaeda's ability to operate from Afghanistan and strike us. And that, I think, was inevitable after 20 years, that we would go back to the original the original conditions. And and here, you know, veterans of Afghanistan, like you, you know, you've served in Afghanistan, have to ask, well, well what was our part in this? I, I was there, maybe lost colleagues, lost fellow soldiers, lost friends. Is this what it's all about? And the reality is that your service, the service of hundreds of thousands of Americans over that 20 years in Afghanistan, gave us 20 years to do a number of things. First of all, it's 20 years without attack on the homeland. So Al-Qaeda did not strike us in that 20-year period. It gave us 20 years to bolster our national defenses against an external strike, not only from Afghanistan, but globally. So think the Department of Homeland Security. Think about the reforms inside our intelligence community. It gave us time to adapt our national resilience or resistance to outside attack. It gave the Afghans time to inefficiently, but to build some security capacity of their own. And it gave the Afghan, time, Afghan government time to develop some institutions and begin to develop capacity for governance. So a lot has been accomplished in those 20 years. And the way to think about this, I think, is that America is not the America of 2001. Afghanistan is not Afghanistan of 2001, and Al-Qaeda is not the same as it was in 2001. And all of those trends have favored us. We are stronger, the Afghans have more capacity, and Al-Qaeda is weaker. And ultimately, that's what this 20-year effort has produced. That may not be for those who have lost loved ones in Afghanistan. That may not be completely satisfying, but it's certainly better than the alternative. Sir, I'm really grateful for that on, on multiple levels and a, really a, a sound way to, to bring us to conclusion there. I'm grateful for, for your reflections and for helping 
pull some some key details out of the the lessons and these this hard-earned information that we've gathered about ourselves about the taliban about al-qaeda um, about the the region um over the past 20 years so um well, except- listen, I, I i applaud your and the research the research office's efforts to get at some of these hard questions i mean i'm look i'm still unpacking this for myself i'm doing my own personal after action review on my experience in afghanistan so i think it's right that that the department of social sciences that west point uh and you and others individually are wrestling with these questions because look the reality is that we can't simply live the 20 years that we've lived in afghanistan and put it on the shelf there's a rich set of lessons to be learned and they won't apply perfectly in the next setting but i think there's enough here to make an effort to do better the next time we have a task like afghanistan and and frankly there's a good likelihood that we will face such challenges again why is that is because our u.s military is so dominant in the conventional space that most opponents will shy away from approaching us in a conventional way and will look to insurgencies and terrorism and other such tactics as a more reasonable approach so there's a lot to be learned and we should we should be getting getting at it and i i applaud your effort to do so again really really appreciate your time look forward to uh continuing to learn reflecting on my my notes from today i hope others are are able to take notes on on the podcast and and reflect on their own experiences and and research as well so thanks for facilitating and enabling that okay thanks very much I'd like to add my thanks to both Ambassador Lute and Major Lubzinski for taking the time to share their experiences and assessments of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. As they both mentioned, the war carries special resonance for all who've served there, but perhaps more importantly, we still have so much to learn from the 19-plus years we've been there. We appreciate their contributions, and we look forward to continuing the conversation and the learning process. As usual, the views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music.